I'm going to ask Mike and Tasha to come up. We want to pray for them before they leave for Africa. Um, hey, as they're coming up, one of the things that I thought about really is just a point of celebration for our church is this week two of our families uh, got into their Habitat for Humanity home. So Charity Ryan and her kids and Fran Anderson, uh, y'all come stand on the stage with me. I'm not going to let y'all off that easy. Uh, but we, we celebrate with these uh, families and are excited for uh, where God has brought them to. Um, Mike and Tasha leave tomorrow for Africa, are going to be gone for an extended period of time. Uh, God has given him the opportunity to be gone really for a month, maybe about five weeks. Uh, going to spend about two weeks of that in our country of Guinea where our people group is and are going to have the opportunity to spend at least ten nights in the villages, ten days. We say nights because that's when we story. Uh, but um, it's really double what our teams are normally able to do, and so we're excited and are thankful for y'all's um, willingness to do that. They will also uh, be going to Liberia after that because Tasha has people in Liberia. And uh, listen, I don't even have time, Tasha, this morning to talk about it, but <laughs> Tasha... Uh, I found out after one trip that she had a driver's license in Liberia. Thinking, I'm pretty sure that's not church policy. Okay, but anyhow, I'm just picking at you. Uh, they have, uh, Tasha is connected with some ministries over there, and one of them being an orphanage. And so I know y'all are going to do some work with the orphanage. But also there's uh, about a three-day vacation Bible school that uh, Tasha has arranged and uh, going to have Bible study and crafts and rec and maybe even a national rapper is coming to do music. But anyhow, uh, so we're excited about that. We want to cover them in prayer as they go out as representatives of ours and go and minister. Uh, the work that we do in Africa is critical, and we are quite honestly at a critical stage in that. And so uh, I want to lead them uh, I want us to lead us in prayer uh, for the Warners, and then if you will covet uh, to pray for them, we look forward to Sunday, December 12th. They will be back, and we're going to spend the whole uh, sermon time just talking about what God has done, so we're super excited. So if you'll join me in prayer this morning. Father, I thank you for Mike and for Tasha. And I thank you for their hearts, and I thank you for your hand that we've seen upon their lives in even engineering um, the opportunities that they have, by faith, uh, stepped into. And so, Father, we, um, of course, we pray for their protection. We pray for uh, logistics and travel in <laughs> the midst of COVID and the complications that are there. Um, uh, Father, we know that you're sovereign God and that you will see them through and you will get them to where you want them to be when you want them to be there. And so, Father, uh, more than praying for their protection and for uh, trip logistics, Father, uh, we pray that, that Jesus would be known and his name would be proclaimed and that people would come to faith. Father, we pray for the church to rise up among a people where there are no churches and that, Father, you would raise up leadership. And so, Father, as I have prayed for them, 
previous, I pray for them now that I pray that your spirit would give them words to speak uh, in the moments that they need those words. I pray that you would direct their steps, you would guide their minds, and that you would open up doors. And Father, we know that you love our people more than we do. And so, Father, I pray that you would be working in people's hearts to receive and that you would engineer the circumstances to bring about what you want to, uh, Father. And so, uh, just, Father, we pray for your hand to be upon their lives and for you to use them in a powerful way. And so we trust all this to you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. The scripture teaches us that there is, a, there is a day that is coming that will culminate God's glory. Do you understand that when all this story, our stories, all the stories of the nations of the world, when they play out, there will be the climax to the glory of God. Oh, it, it's coming. It's coming. And that's the way the story ends. Uh, this morning we come to the final sermon, the final chapter in our series in Zechariah. This is Zechariah chapter 14. This fall we have spent time focused on uh, the theme, the glory in small things, and talked about how God wants to take what he's called us to do and how God will take our obedience in the midst of that and he will project that into the future and he will amplify it for his glory. This morning we come to the amplification, the ultimate amplification of God's glory in Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, and I want us to read that today. Uh, but before I read, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all of it, uh, but I want to read selective verses, but you can turn in your Bibles uh, to that. Um, the book of Zechariah just briefly has broken down in two halves. The first half, God gives Zechariah uh, apocalyptic visions. Uh, apocalyptic is simply a word that to means to reveal that which is hidden. And so as they were called to rebuild the temple... God said, I, I want to pull back the curtains of eternity so that you can see the unseen world, so that you see the significance of what I've called you to do and, and to be encouraged in that. And so God sends Zechariah eight visions, what we would call apocalyptic visions, because they reveal the hidden, uh, spiritual, heavenly, unseen world and God wanted to use that to encourage them. And so that's the first half of the book. The second half of Zechariah, God, after they have completed the rebuilding of the temple, then God begins to see, send them visions about the future because it's always more than just about the present. And God begins to show them things that will occur in the future. The, the theme of the second half of Zechariah is about the coming kingdom. That was the theme. And within that theme, the most significant truth was not just about the kingdom, but the king. 
And so we were introduced to these prophecies of Jesus, as I have said, the concentration of prophetic, messianic Jesus prophecies uh, is almost like no other scripture in all the Old Testament that it just talks about how he will be a man of humility that will come and he will ride on a donkey, that he will be rejected uh, by the other shepherds as Byron preached last Sunday, that he would be pierced, that there would be a fountain that would be created for the forgiveness of sins and that even later in Zechariah 13, it says that they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter and it spoke about persecution of the early followers of Jesus. And so as we begin to trace out that theme, we come to chapter 14 to the the culmination, the climax um, of this theme, the coming kingdom. And it's described in Zechariah 14, and I want to read verses 1 through 9, and then I want to read 16 through 19, and then I may make a few comments after that. That was a Baptist preacher joke. Of course I'm going to make some comments. Of course. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet shall stand, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, the lights will diminish, It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one, and his name is one. Uh, Verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that Whichever of the families of earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. 
If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to the, keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. There's some aspects in those verses that speak to the culmination of God's kingdom. There's just some, some simple truths that drawn out from that, and we're not going to be able to dive deeply into them. Each one of these truths, we could look to New Testament scriptures, and some of those I will read, but most of them I will not. But in these verses, we see the culmination of God's kingdom, which ultimately points to the culmination of of his glory. What will it look like at the end? And man, we've spent all this fall looking at the apocalyptic visions of Zechariah. We've talked about those, those prophecies related to not only the coming kingdom, but the coming king. And we've seen those fulfilled in Jesus. But what will be the culmination of God's kingdom? In verse 1, the first aspect of that, God will have his day. At the end, God will have his day. Uh, it describes in verse 1, it says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. <laughs> if you read Zechariah, Zechariah in the second half has talked about in that day, in that day. Byron, I, I tried to start reading those and then I, I had too many fingers and toes. I couldn't keep track of it it just he just keeps saying in that day in that day in that day and if you think about it, in that day is kind of a uh, a general term there is a day coming finally in 14 1 he says that day is the day of the Lord it's God's day there will come a day at the end of history where God will have his day understand what that implies since the rebellion that occurred in the Garden of Eden Thousands of years ago, God has allowed man to have his day. And God has been sovereignly working uh, his redemptive plan in the midst of human history, but God has allowed man to have his day. But the prophecy of Zechariah says, no, there's coming a day that God will have his day. Understand that man is going to have thousands and thousands of years. It will take one day for God to make it all right. It will be the culmination of his kingdom. Um, the second aspect of the culmination of God's kingdom or his glory is that it describes in verses 2 and 3 that the re rebellion will be put down once for all. And it describes how the nations will gather against Jerusalem in verses 2 and 3. And God will come and God will fight. Not only will God have his day, but the culmination of God's kingdom is the rebellion will be put down once for all. There will be a final battle with the nations and all of human history will come to a head. Do you understand that all those nations and all those armies will come against Jerusalem? That's what it describes. 
Uh, when you go to the book of Revelation, this is where I'm just going to kind of like, boop, drop a little thought here, and I'm going to go move on. Revelation 16, 16 describes the battle of Armageddon. The nations will be gathered, and there will be a final and decisive battle, and the rebellion will be put down once for all. God will defeat the forces of evil. It will be over. So that's the second truth in 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3. The third truth, and I'm moving through these quickly because the last one is, is the punchline. Verses 4 through 8, the Lord will come. And that's what it describes. Verse 3, the Lord will, come, will go forth. Uh, later, uh, it describes that that God will come. God himself will come. Uh, one of the interesting things about this, and I, I, sometimes I just go, why? Uh, but that's above my pay grade. It says when God comes, he will come to a specific location. He will come to the Mount of Olives. You go, wow. Of all places. And so the fulfillment we've already seen of Jesus coming the first time, uh, there was significance in Jesus' ministry uh, to the Mount of Olives. And then when we read Acts 1, Jesus has been resurrected. And when Jesus ascends to the Father, when he descends to heaven, he ascends from the Mount of Olives. And... Uh, the men, you know, men, men, mm. don't have time for that. What do they do? Jesus, like, I'm leaving you, but when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to you. I'm getting in kind of my bubble voice right now, you know. It's like, hey. Um, and uh, so then he takes them out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus, doo -doo -doo, whatever it sounds like when somebody's like, I don't know, transported or something. I don't know. I don't have my my noises. Jesus raises the Father. And what are the men doing? I think he's gone. You know, I don't know. But it's, it, it's just it's funny to me. I'm sorry. And finally, God goes, well, let's just, let, let me send two angels to, boys, you can't stand here the rest of the time looking up in the sky. And so the two angels come. It's comical to me, not everybody, but it's like, Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking in the sky? This same Jesus will come back in the way he has gone. But it's not just in the way he has gone to the place he, he left from. Jesus left from the Mount of Olives. In his second coming, he will come back to the Mount of Olives. And that's what it's described there. But... The point is that the Lord will come. And it even says in verse 5 that the saints will come with him, which is what Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians. The fourth truth in these verses is that God's kingdom will be finalized. Verse 9, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. And it describes 
What we know from Revelation 20 is the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ. So God will have his day. The rebellion will be put down. The battle of Armageddon. The Lord will come, and God's kingdom will be finalized. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he came the first time, and the kingdom of God has been working. But on that day, the Lord's day, God's kingdom will be finalized, and Revelation 20 tells us that that earthly kingdom will last a thousand years, and so we refer to it as the millennial kingdom. And what's interesting to me is it, it is an answer to the prayer of Jesus when they ask him that day, Master, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, when you pray, say this. I'm going to go... Old King James, if you don't mind right now, because that's the way I learned it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so for thousands of years we've prayed. But on that day, God will reign in his kingdom. His kingdom will be finalized. Um, those first four ideas from this passage are kind of, uh, they're part and they're significant of the culmination of God's kingdom. But I want us to leave with one last picture because when I read the book of Zechariah back in the summer to prepare for this, I thought, wow, the book ends with the Feast of Tabernacles. And I know it doesn't appear, but I'm a thinker. So I just, <laughs> I just started mulling that over. It's like, wow, of all things, why? Why does the book end with the Feast of tabernacles it's very significant and I want us to see this in just the moments that we have left this morning and it's contained in what I read in verses 16 through 19 and it's such a powerful picture that not only speaks to our future but I want you to understand also speaks to our present so um, hey, I have the one slide that has the feast. Can I put that on the screen? Thank you. Um, there are three feasts that God gave great detail to, to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, you can read this in Leviticus 23. He tells it again in Deuteronomy 16. I've said this about prophetic scripture or any of the scripture. When God gives details, the details are significant. And God just goes in these great details. Three feasts, three times a year, you're all together. The first one is Passover in the spring of the year. The second is Pentecost, which is 50 days later. And then in the fall of the year, there's tabernacles. Um, there's a past observance component to this. There is a present there's a, I'm sorry, there's a past event to each one of these. 
There is a present observance to each one of these, and there is a future fulfillment to each one of these. And I want to get to the Feast of Tabernacles real quickly, so let me just go through the others, and I don't have time to really dive into the details. But Passover has a past uh, event, and it was their deliverance out of Egypt that night that God delivered them out of bondage and brought them out of Egypt. And then the present observance was every year God said, in the spring of the year, when there is, there's an agricultural com- component to these feasts also, when new life is emerging in the spring of the year, um, late March, early April, that it's the first of month, it's the first month of the Jewish calendar. Uh, you are to do this every year, and this is what you're going to do, and you're going to kill the Passover lamb, and these are the foods that you're going to eat. Uh, but then there was a future fulfillment to that, which was the death of Jesus on the cross at Passover in the spring of the year. And it's future to them. It's past to us. But when God gave it, it was fulfilled by the death of Jesus. Pentecost was the same. After they were delivered out of Egypt, uh, 50 days later, they, they were at Mount Sinai, and God gave them the law. And so the past event was God giving the law at Mount Sinai. The present observance was Pentecost, which God describes as first fruits. You don't understand until the future fulfillment of why, why it's called first fruits. But it was in, the, in um, late May, early June... 50 days after uh, Passover, uh, they would have their first fruits would harvest. And they would celebrate God giving the law. But the fulfillment to Pentecost was Acts 2. When God said, wait in the city until you are endued with power on high. And all those people came for Pentecost and God sends his spirit which the prophecy in Jeremiah is the day will come that God will replace the written law that was written on stones and God will write it on your heart. And God did that when he sent his spirit uh, at, at Pentecost in Acts 2. And the 3,000 people who believed and were baptized that day were the first fruits. And then they waited. There's only one more feast. That's where we are today. It's tabernacles. So Passover and Pentecost were fulfilled. 2,000 years. We've waited. What about tabernacles? Tabernacles was in the fall of the year. It was their harvest. It's it's this feel of fall, y'all, as we say. No, it's, it's their fall feast. It was, it was the feast that was different than the other feasts because it was joyous. It was a celebration. They've gathered in the harvest. They've brought it in as a testament to the faithfulness of God. But the past event that connects with tabernacles was, uh, it was the time in the wilderness when they lived in temporary shelters. But God took care of them. And God was there with them, his presence, his provision. And God said, every fall, I want you to, I want you, this is the present observance, I want you to build temporary shelters or booths or tabernacles on the roof of your houses or wherever you can, and I want you to camp out for these seven days this week 
And I want you to remember the past that God took care of you those 40 years in the wilderness, his presence and his provision in your life. And so the past relates to those 40 years. The present was every year they would build booths. Uh, but actually there was, there was more to this fall festival because it happened on the seventh month in their Jewish calendar. You're not going to believe this. But look it up. It's in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. God says on the first day of that month, I want you to blow trumpets. Doesn't tell them why. We're just going to blow trumpets. First day of the seventh month. He said on the tenth day of the month, I want everybody to gather at the, the tabernacle, the temple. And it is, it is the Jews call it Yom, uh, I'm sorry, uh, trumpets is called Rosh Hashanah. Uh, on the, that's on the first day of the seventh month. The tenth day is Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement. In that day, the priest will go into the Holy of Holies and he will atone for the sins of the people for the last year. Everything will be wiped clean on the day of atonement for the previous year. And then from the 15th to the 21st, he said, I want you to live in booths. That's what God said. Okay, well, let's do it. That's the way God said to do it. Um, and we wait for the future fulfillment. Some of you are already ahead of me on this. 2,000 years. What are we waiting for? For God to come again, for Jesus to come again. What does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians will happen? The trumpets will sound, announcing the coming king who does not ride on a donkey. He comes in all his glory. The king is coming. The trumpets will blow. The day of atonement and the sins of the people of all times will be erased. And you go, man, I get it. But you come to Zechariah and it says that's, that's not the end of it. The end of that feast is the Feast of Tabernacles that celebrated the provision and the presence of God. And you go, why? The scripture says that, oh, I love this scripture. I read it at my mama's funeral. You got to love a scripture when you read it at your mama's funeral. Revelation 7, 9, and around the throne, people from all the nations of every tie, tongue, and tribe, ethnicity, they will gather around the throne and they will praise God. Um, I'm going to stand, Tasha and Mike, I'm going to stand with a certain group of people that have darker skin than I do that day. Because there's going to be a people there. Uh, there's going to be a people there from every ethnicity, every tribe, every nation. So all the nations will be gathered 
What's going to bring God glory? (laughs) That people from every nation stood before the throne to worship the king. Not in the millennial kingdom, but in a heavenly kingdom. And then all of a sudden, the next to last chapter of the Bible, when God in the apocalyptic vision of the book of Revelation to John, he says in John 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, you got to get this, this is like a bomb. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Do you understand? The word tabernacle is a loaded word. For all of these centuries, the Jewish people have, in the fall, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, temporary shelters to celebrate the presence and the provision of God. And when God gives the apocalyptic vision to John and he pictures heaven, what is heaven? It's the culmination. It's the ultimate expression of tabernacles that God will tabernacle with his people and he shall dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death nor sorrow nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. You see, when you project the story out, when God apocalyptically had to give them an earthly picture of what heaven would be in the Old Testament, he says, what is the culmination? It is the Feast of Tabernacles when all the nations will come and you will experience the presence and the provision of God in its ultimate Fullness. I love this thought that as we project out the future uh, to heaven, the ultimate fulfillment that is expressed here is, is the ultimate fulfillment to the covenant that was with Abraham. And I've said this all through this series that God promised Abraham a people, a land, And a blessing. And the blessing was to spread to all the families of the earth, which is the expression here that all the nations shall be brought before God. But I want to end with this. The the people are going to be there. All the nations of the world. There There won't be a land. There will be a place. But it's the blessing. What will be the blessing? The blessing is that we will experience the fullness of God's provision and his presence as we have never seen. That actually in the Feast of Tabernacles was what we were longing for. And it won't be a temporary shelter. It'll be a permanent shelter. It will be a city. I thought about what that meant to the people of Zechariah's day. And this was it when I thought about it. 
God says, right now I need you to rebuild a temple. The temple's going to be a little building where you can encounter God's presence and provision to, in a limited sense. But if you're faithful in that, I want you to see how it projects in the future and is amplified because someday you will experience the presence and the provision of God and its ultimate expression, which will be heaven. And all through the Old Testament, it's like, man, you can't look at the face of God. Don't look at the face of God. You can't look at the face of God. Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, mm, I'm going to pass by and I'm going to show you my backside. That's all I can show you. But someday the veil is gone. The tabernacles aren't temporary. No, there's a place that God will create that we will experience God face to face, which is the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And for the people in Zechariah's day, it's build the place where you can get a taste of what is to come. But I also want to give you a picture. And what I would end with today to you is, as we've said in this series, the glory of in small things, whatever God has asked you to do, do it. Because it projects into the future but God amplifies it. That, that was the truth through all these sermons, that our present obedience projects into the future and is amplified for God's glory. Whatever God asks you to do in your business, in your family, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your church, whatever it is, no. He wanted to encourage us that someday not only do the effects of that stretch into human history, but someday God will amplify that to the whatever term Byron used in his sermon, the quadrillion power. What was that word? I think he was making some of that up. I don't even think there are numbers. It was like quad, quintillion. God will amplify it to the quintillion power in heaven that God will dwell with us and we will see him face to face and he will sit on the throne because he is king. It will be his glory. God is working all things and in the midst of the muck, do what God has called you to do and know that God will do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. Amen. Uh, won't you stand with me this morning? I want to pray. We're going to have a song. Time for you to personally respond to the message. At the end of this song, the pastors will be at the front if you have decisions to make related to salvation, church membership, baptism. You want somebody to pray with you, we'll be at the front. Father, today we pray that you would just give us a glimpse today of your glory and to know that as we have uh, chosen you to be our Savior and our Lord, that, Father, when we walk in obedience, that, Father, you do 
glorious things, and sometimes we can't see it now. But, Father, I pray that you'd call us to faithfulness, knowing that you're the God who amplifies it for your glory. And so, Father, we pray that we would surrender our lives to you. We trust that to you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.